Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Hey everyone, before we dive into this week's episode, we have a resource that we wanted to tell you about. Transform every week of yours with our brilliance bit that will deliver right to your email inbox. Sign up for it at brilliantlyresilient.net and keep living brilliantly resilient. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. I'm Kristen Smedley here with my partner, Mary Fran Bontempo, and we have a new friend in the Zoom room today that um, I, I, my, I literally just before we started recording was doing the mind blown um, emoji, life emoji, because the, the similarities here with, with the paths that our guest, uh, the path that our guest has been on, as well as Mary Fran and I are just, it's just, it's too similar not to say, hmm, what else is at play here? <laughs> Today, we're talking to Judy Chinitz, and she is involved in the world of autism, special education, trailblazing, life-changing, total change maker. And I was so excited to read your bio, Judy, and then to sit here and talk about in 30 seconds, we chatted and 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 just so many similarities. So first of all, Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is I fun mean, this, this is just wild to hear that. My, so, so to catch the audience up, I guess I should have hit record when I just started chatting away, which tends to happen here. You know, we're, we're, we have a mutual friend and Fran Hauser and connected through uh, LinkedIn and then all these different ways to come together. And I'm looking at Judy's bio. I said, oh, my gosh. You're involved in, in – uh, Judy's involved with autism because her son was diagnosed with autism. So I said – oh, had you ever been involved with autism or anything like it before your son was born? Because I had never been involved with blindness until the first blind person I met was my son. And Judy says, well, I was a teacher of the visually impaired. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but but I wanted the, the best part of it is that you started it by saying you started on Wall Street and left Wall Street. Judy, catch us up here. How did all this happen? Wall Street to special ed to teacher of the visually impaired autism. Oh my gosh. I'm one of those people who in college I never knew what I really wanted to do. So I majored in English literature just because I loved it. And then I graduated and I was completely afloat, did not know what I wanted to do, mostly because everything seems pretty interesting to me. So <laughs> same, same thing. There's very little that I'm not interested in. So I uh, started off, believe it or not, in graduate school for library science, but I couldn't even pay my rent. And a friend of the family got me a job on Wall Street. I knew nothing about it, uh, nothing, but the pay was good. Uh, so there I was for five years down on Wall Street, you know, a phone on each ear, screaming, cussing up a storm, that kind of thing. And I was the biggest misfit you've ever met. First of all, I don't lie. So you can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> so, but I, I, after, Wait, I, Wall Street? I know. And I was, I was, um, I was 22 and I had basically an unlimited expense account. So that was really fun for a few years. New York City, the limos, the restaurants, the, you know, the sporting events. I love watching sports. 
So it was all a whole lot of fun until I realized that I could not do this the rest of my life. I was like, just done. Put a fork in me. I was done. So I decided I'd go back to graduate school and um, get a degree in special education. And originally, as we were just talking about, my original degree is teaching the blind visually impaired. Then I won't go through all the different things I had to do, but we moved to England when my child was one, my older son was one. I got into the brand new internet industry, taught myself to code, but he tanked when I was in England. And we came back to America and that's when he was diagnosed uh, at two years old with autism. And that completely now, after that, my life was set. There was nothing, it was taken out of my hands. The control was gone. And so I rolled with the punches. I um, recertified in special education, started doing part-time work when I could, working with children on the autism spectrum. Um, and uh, sort of did that for quite a while, ended up doing a bunch of other things, got divorced in now, uh, let's see, uh, 17, 18 years ago. So I raised my kids by myself. I have a younger son who's neurotypical. Um, and then four years ago, my son now being 25 years old, I heard of this method where you could teach non-speaking children with autism how to supposedly speak through spelling on a letter board. Just imagine a laminated piece of paper, basically, with the alphabet on it. Now, I was quite convinced uh, the school had been telling me all along that my son was profoundly cognitively impaired. I had no reason to argue with them. I tried to teach him, right? I'm a special ed teacher. So for 25 years, I tried to teach him even just the alphabet. There were lots of things I couldn't understand, couldn't reconcile. He would do things that seemed awfully smart for somebody with a 40 IQ, <laughs> which is what I was told it was. You know, and all the testing showed that he was cognitively impaired. I didn't think I had taught him to read. I didn't think I had taught him really anything. Um, but I thought, oh, you know, I'm one of those people that, once the bee is in the bonnet, I can't leave any stone unturned. And so off I went to go and try to learn a little bit about this method. And almost exactly four years ago, it was, the, it was July 1st of 2019, I started to learn about it, came home. I learned that from a speech pathologist down in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. I came home. I started working with him every single day, thinking I'll give this a six-month trial, see if anything mm -hmm. Within four months, he was talking to me fluently by spelling. Wow. Eventually got retested. His IQ is actually 150 or above. Um, took the GED, passed with distinction, and is supposed to be starting SUNY Purchase in four months. Got accepted to their play and script writing program. Oh, my gosh. So. Gosh. so 25 I, years. 25 I, years, you're saying. I just want to land on that for a second. For people that think that, that you know, they're they're we have this, we have this visual in our presentations, pushing a boulder up a hill, right? And you didn't stop. You didn't stop looking for a method. <laughs> so of course I'm thinking to myself, did your son, when he finally was able to communicate, go, what took you all so long? You know, I'd be like, I put it That here. is a great question, Kristen. <laughs> Actually, I said to him, when he first started to talk to me, I said to him one day, how did you bear it? Because he's been in programs for the profoundly cognitively disabled through his entire school life. Then he was in a day program for the profoundly cognitively disabled so I could work for four years. Mm -hmm. I said, how did you bear it? And he said, and I'm quoting him, 
I always believed that one day you would figure out that I am smart. Oh, oh Judy. Blindfold. I had a very bad day because at that moment, the, the guilt. Oh. I know I shouldn't feel guilty. I didn't know. And he says that to me all the time. But still, there's an, an overwhelming guilt that I have to live with now because I did everything I thought was the right thing to do. And it was everything was the wrong thing. And wow. uh, so to, I don't want to say to make up for it, because there's no way I can ever make up for it, but to try to make up for it as best as I could, I ch completely changed my career, became a teacher of this method, opened up the mouth to hand learning center, smack in the middle of COVID in my basement, started to what I thought was going to tutor some of my friends, kids and stuff like that. And now we are, oh, at least 50 students strong. I've got classes going on all day, every day, teaching uh, them everything I could think of to teach them. I te tease my parents and I go, you know that useless Ivy League English degree that you got for me that you paid a fortune for? I'm using it. I'm so excited. <laughs> a parent so, really took me 30 years. <laughs> so, I'm there. so I'm teaching them, you know, literature, how to write poetry, how to write poetry. And that's where the book came from. Um, I've taught them, I have a lot of students who can identify the difference between a, a coloratura and a dramatic soprano. Anything I could think of teaching them, I teach. Oh. So um, I created this place. It's a community now. Um, and um, we are getting bigger almost by the week. Uh, and it's a haven for the non-speaking. Um, and I try to bring in everybody from the community I can to meet them, to talk to them to expose them to the real world, which they've been sheltered from because they were all in programs for the cognitively impaired. Mm. And flip side, to introduce them to the world so people can see who they really are. They're not what we thought they are. You know, I, so, I, I mean, so much of what you're saying, first of all, it's incredibly profound. And, and the idea, I can understand the mom guilt because you know, my story is vastly different, but when my son was involved with, with addiction and all that, and I, I knew it, I knew it, but you know, you, you just, you put it in a different place and I didn't do the right things. And I thought it all of that, but the thing that strikes me the most about this is that you had such, we tell a story in our presentation about Apollo 13, solving a massive problem with cardboard duct tape and, and a plastic bag. And when you talk about this simple letter board as being something that was the answer to a problem, did you ever feel at any point that the science got in the way in some, in some ways, because we have so much education and we have learned so much, but sometimes the answer is so simple and it's right in front of us and we overlook it because it, it has to be more complicated than that in our minds. Was there ever that feeling like, why wasn't this simpler? Yes, except for that autism is an incredibly complex thing. And I'm not a big believer in oversimplification. So in other words, when people say, well, there's an autism epidemic now and it's caused by and fill in the blank. That's not me. I'm very scientific by nature. And if it were a simple one, one word answer, okay, I think we would have figured out what's happening. I do not think it's an easy thing. I do not believe that it's one thing. 
it's probably like a snowball rolling downhill. It's a bunch of things that are accumulating. As that happens, it makes you susceptible to the next thing happening. And then that thing causes the next thing to happen. And I feel like it's the same way with this. I think that most people who are involved in special education are pretty you know, good-hearted people and mean the best. Same with speech pathology, occupational therapy. I think people, for the most part, choose to go into these careers for a reason. Mm-hmm. Okay, but like me, I think that we knew what we knew. We had no good way of teaching them because it turned out that what's wrong with this particular subset uh remember autism is just a big umbrella diagnosis it's really a garbage can diagnosis to be frank because they're dumping anybody in it and you can have you know people who are speaking and going to college on this end and you could have people who are non-speaking and consider quote low functioning on this end um and once they get this diagnosis there's a prescription of how the educational path is going to happen and the problem really is is that that educational methodology is um, self-perpetuating. And what I mean is when a child is diagnosed with low functioning autism, quote unquote, that means they're not speaking typically and are believed to have very low IQs. Bearing in mind, of course, all testing requires motor skills. So either speaking or manipulating things. So we, our children were all diagnosed as being low functioning, profoundly cognitively impaired, non-speaking, based upon a test that requires the ability to do certain things, which is their diagnosis. What they actually are is motor impaired. They're profoundly, profoundly motor impaired. So they can't write, they can't manipulate blocks on a table or string beads. And now we've perpetuated that system. We keep testing them in the same way. And that proves that they're cognitively impaired. To boot, the educational methodology that is prescribed for autism is a very motor-based methodology. Pick up the card on the table, point to something, clap your hands, stand up, do things, a lot of motor planning, but that's their diagnosis. They're really what they have is something called dyspraxia, dys as in not working, of praxis. Praxis is volitional motor movement. If you walk into my center and you say to any of my students, including my son, smile, they will distort their face in every which way. They all smile normally as long as they're not thinking about it. But as soon as we say to them, smile, now they're thinking about it. So now they can't do it. Well, now think of any educational setting. Pick up the A. Oh, wait a minute. I'm thinking about picking up the A. So I can't pick up the A anymore. And what happens is the more you prove that they're cognitively disabled, the more people say they need that educational methodology. And they fail to learn. And they say, you see, they're low functioning. They really need that educational methodology. And it's just this vicious cycle that they get caught in, a failure. And the failure proves that they need it. And then they fail. And that proves again that they need it. And it goes on forever. And so that is what happened to all of my students. So is it simple? It is simple, Mary Mary Fran, in that, yes, it's it's a card with the letter on it. But to teach them to volitionally get to the letters is not simple at all. Hmm. Right. Well, and I didn't mean to imply that it was. No, I didn't mean to imply that it was, but your explanation actually really clarifies in many ways a very complicated situation. And that what you just talked about, about that self-perpetuating kind of diagnosis and testing 
It's almost like, okay, we're going to prove continually that you can't do this. And that means that you need this, but they're, they're then by doing that, they're focusing on the wrong things because they're not looking maybe for what this person can do. Yes. Is that, is that the, is that the other switch there that needed to be thrown? Okay. That's they can't exactly pick right. up the egg. So what can they do? That's exactly right. So the, the, you, you've summarized it beautifully and once you teach them to start getting to the letters volitionally, which requires sometimes years of repeated until it becomes so automated that they don't have to think about it anymore, suddenly you realize this person doesn't actually have a language disability. My son was reading since he was two years old. He doesn't have a cognitive disability. What he has is such a severe motor disability that he was unable to show anybody. It's a kind of like a, a version, if you know what I mean, of locked-in syndrome. Mm-hmm. I so want to tell you that I am in here and that I am intelligent, but now I'm thinking about showing you. So now I can't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're reminding me so much, and I, I want I want folks to to think about this aspect of this, no matter what your your child or family member, or you know, if you're banging your head against the wall with with our educational system. When I said that my two boys are blind and when my Michael, they're now 23 and, and 19 and, and succeeding beyond anyone's wildest dreams. But back in kindergarten, in that individualized education plan meeting, they had a, the one goal that I, I have now blown up all over the world is they, they this was their mentality. Michael would hang his coat up uh, with 70% accuracy. And I said, he can walk. And I actually said to the vice, I would have been out because I was a teacher. I said, I've been out of the classroom for a while. Do we have moving cubbies? Like, are they like on some kind of belt that he's got to figure out which one's moving past? They said, no, they're on the wall. They're the wooden things. So my thing with that, they said, oh, 70% for a blind kid is really good. And I said, no, 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 no. Nothing is wrong with my son if he cannot get the get to the same cubby every day more than 70% of the time. Something is wrong with the strategies we are teaching him to get to that cubby. And when they started looking at it as their strategies versus something wrong with him, that was the switch. Now, I will say that switch took a solid year to flip and a new principal that actually had a phenomenal background in special education and who actually also admitted to me that they had no idea what to do for my son. I would have to do it. So I did go and find programs like you that were working and built them in our, in our own home school. But that whole concept of they are, you're right. Our system says they're broken. It doesn't work. Even the, 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 um, they would, they have so many blind kids are sitting in, in low functioning programs because the IQ test requires, there's a big facet that's visual. Uh Well, so because they have a zero for that, they score so low that then the education systems put them in low function. It, it, it boggles your mind. It does. Working within this system. It does. It does. And so, of course, um, you know, when he was tested, he was tested using a method of communication. We just didn't give them a method of communication. It would be like, you know, Stephen Hawking sitting in a wheelchair, not giving him his computer voice and saying, wow, this this guy must be cognitively disabled because he can't talk. I know. It's wild thing is he used to talk and so everybody knew but my son and the children like him never talked and I pointed all the time that people that the word dumb actually means unable to speak it was from deaf and dumb 
it doesn't mean stupid, but it became to be mean stupid because not being able to speak with your mouth came to be associated with cognitive impairment. So <clears throat> I, I can't even imagine the parents and these students of yours who once they achieve this, I can't even begin to imagine the experience and the emotions and everything that they feel when their child who they have looked at as you looked at your son for so many years, because that's what they were told, how they suddenly, not suddenly, but how they can then communicate. I mean, talk about a life-changing experience and moment. And, you know, Kristen has been very vocal and very active about how the disabled quotes air quotes for nobody who can see this how the disabled community has so much to offer and so many gifts is this something that you see as being able now to translate into that hey these people are employable like in in certain you know areas like they can certainly contribute and is that maybe the next phase of this in your mind that's another great question the answer i would say is yes Okay, like somebody who may need an aid, they'll need an aid with them. Um, but they are brilliant and they are funny and they are profound thinkers and they are um, empathetic to a degree that you would not find in this neurotypical, for, I hate that word too, but population. Um, you know, my son would like to be a, a, a play and screen, you know, script writer. Um, I have some students who would like to go into journalism, some who'd like to study history. Um, we do have to figure out how to adapt the world to them. Okay, But uh, yes, I absolutely believe that they have tremendous contributions that they could be making. Um, and that's one of my dreams for my students is to figure out how to make that their reality, how to get them through on mass high school you know, curriculum so they can get their high school diplomas if they so choose, uh, how to get them into college if they so choose. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day kind of a thing. And so I can say I've been creeping forward. May 17th was my three-year anniversary of this company that I built with starting with one student, mm -hmm. um, who, which is now this, you know, thriving community. Um, we we published a book of their works. We just had a, a gala. We were already oversubscribed to the gala to fundraise because I also started a not-for-profit with some of the other parents um, in order to uh, raise money to find ways to enrich their lives with things that are outside the scope of what my company does. So, so we've done I, we've done a lot in the last three years. Um, I, I can't believe how far it's come and how rapidly. Um, and yes, I want to make their their lives um, as as rich and fulfilling as possible. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the people that you're impacting now and all, all of, I know that you said you still have this mom guilt. You know, when my Michael, I, I had three and a half years of sitting on my couch, praying blindness away every single night and every single morning, furious that it was still there, right? And it was my Michael at three and a half years old that was like, wake up woman, we got stuff to do here. Like I have gotten, he was very charming and cute. And all he said to me was, mommy, isn't this the best day ever? And I was like, oh my God, all I wanted was to be a mom and a really great mom. Aside from all the other goals I had in my life, that was my biggest one. And here I was the worst mom. 
not going out. I couldn't get past that. All of what I wanted for him, I had to just drop it and then go get him all the stuff that he's needed. And now I, I, I wrote a book years ago, thriving blind. You said community of thrivers. And it literally speaks to that mom that is sitting on the couch crying, unable to move forward and get their kids the tools that they need. So my question for you is, is, um, what do you say to the, to the, to the families, the parents that are just so stuck in grief? I mean, you kept going, looking for answers for 25 years. What kind of, what kind of, um, what kind of advice or do you get to talk to parents that are stuck in grief that just can't move past that diagnosis day and look for tools? I have many times um, spoken to parents that are, are stuck. Um, and of course, everybody has those moments in life, every single one of us, where you're just frozen. You're frozen because maybe there's you're overwhelmed, you're too much to do, you're you know, you're emotionally stuck. So I invented this thing when Alex was like really little, like three years old. I said to myself, you know what? You're human. So you're allowed to feel sorry for yourself. It's a normal human thing to feel sorry for yourself. So, but if you do it for too long, you'll get stuck. You won't be able to dig yourself out. It'll become habitual. So I invented what I called the 72 hour rule. 72 hours, I can feel sorry for myself as I want. I can blub, I can cry, I can eat ice cream. I can, I can do whatever I need to do and feel really sorry for myself. But after 72 hours, that's it. We're done, you stand up and you move forward. And because I always abided by that rule and I taught tons of other parents, we used to just yell at each other, 72 hour rule, you're finished now. So you have to allow people to feel what they're gonna feel. Of course we feel grief. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not that we all signed up to have something happen to our children. It's not that, you know, we did something to make this situation happen. It's not our fault. It's not their fault. So you're allowed to feel really sorry for yourself, but, but feeling sorry for yourself is not being proactive. It doesn't accomplish anything. So that was my rule. And I've stuck by it for now. He's 29 years old. I've stuck by it for 29 years. Wow. You know, it's funny. One of the things that um, we say in Brilliantly Resilient is you have to make the decision if you're just visiting that place of pain or if you're going to live there. Right. And, exactly. and you know, yeah. And and it does make the difference. It doesn't mean your problems are going to be solved. But as you said, you can live in a state of inertia or you can try. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. You can try. And yeah. without that little tiny three-letter word, you're stuck. You yeah, have to you have right. to try. You know, there's nothing. What other choice? You do. You know, I always told told both of my sons now that you know everything in life is a choice. So you can choose to try or you can choose to not try. But then I would also point out to my younger son before I knew that Alex was cognitively intact, I would say to my younger son Liam, I think. I can choose to not ask the next doctor if they can have something that can help us. But if I don't ask, I have a 0% chance of helping Alex. If I do ask, maybe I have a 0.0001% chance, but that's still better than zero. So you ask. And sure enough, over and over in his life, he's seen that through persistence, you can solve problems. It may take a, a week. It, in my case, it can take 25 years. 
but you can if you keep trying the likelihood in my personal experience is more often than not you will be able to find a way to fix it and and things change within that time people yeah. become more aware and you know that's the other thing that that Kristen and I say we have to allow for evolution uh, you know the evolution of the world the evolution of other thinkers the evolution of of practices and standards and tests and all of that kind of stuff but if you stop before those things happen, you don't ever have a chance to be a part of that. So That's that idea of persistence is something that we really have to get into. Now, we have to wind up soon, but before we do, really quick, I want to talk about your book. I love the title, Spellbound, The Voices of the Silence. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I realized early on that with their grasp of language, the likelihood was that they had the ability to create uh, and it, you know, in an exemplary way began to teach them the elements of poetry, poetic devices, things like that, which they're just like sponges. They mop it all up. And I suddenly, one day, it was almost like a dam burst. Just they started to create. And the work is beautiful. Uh, and it seemed a shame not to share it. And so I thought conceived of this idea of putting together a book. Fortunately, one of our fa families is good friends with uh, Fran Hauser, who has a, uh, you know, this not-for-profit um I, you know, that helps people to get books published and we call her our book angel. So she helped us put together this beautiful, brilliant, you know, book um, of their work. We're already planning the sequel because the, the more students that start to talk, the more amazing work I accumulate. So we have our own YouTube channel now for our songwriters. And um, we have now they're venturing. There's one short story in the book, but now we're already just about done with the second short story. We will have, for years now, incredible material to share with the world. Wow. It's, this is amazing. So where can people find all of this information and more about you? Yeah, uh, You can look at me up on my website, which is mouthtohandlearning.com. Uh, my email is judy.chinitz, C-H-I-N-I-T-Z at mouthtohandlearning.com. 914-241-2500 if anybody wants to call the office. We also have the M2HPA, the Mouth to Hand Parent Association. So that has its own website, m2hpa.org. Um, and we're, also, of course, also both of the, the, the not-for-profit and the for-profit are on Facebook uh, and Instagram. So all the information is there. The book is available on Amazon. Um, so again, that's where people can get it. All the profits from the book go straight to the not-for-profit. Awesome. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about all those years that, that your son was observing and not able to communicate what he was observing, but now going into the field he's going into, I'd have to think that that is really going to um, impact all those years of, of observation of what he's going to be able to produce now. I'm really thrilled to think about it. It's really exciting. I mean, he's registered for his first semester uh, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I can't say it's a miracle, but it, it's kind of a miracle. Oh, oh yeah. I'm going to say it miracle. Qualifies. <laughs> it qualifies. It qualifies. Right. Oh, this, this has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting the book and I'm looking forward to following y'all on, on social media and, and staying connected because I really do believe that this all aligned beautifully for us to all all meet and get to know each other and our missions in this world. And I, I just, 
you know, I know I just met you and, and whatnot, but I have to say thank you for, for all that persistence and perseverance and, and all the families that, that you're already impacting and that you're about to. So thank you for being one of those moms that just did not stop. I appreciate that. Well, th thank you both for having me today. Thank you both for your, your kind words. Um, again, it's just, it's a choice ultimately. Right. And uh, yeah. It's a choice, you all. Everybody's got a choice, whether you're going to sit there or whether you're going to take one next right step. And if you need a, a, some inspiration, motivation to take that next just one right step, go to brilliantlyresilient.net and sign up for the Brilliance Bit. It is super simple. It comes right to your email inbox once a week and keeps you motivated um, to take the next right step. So thank you so much, Judy. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.